Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. introduction and David thanks for framing this in the context of why we do what we do which is keep on learning and I look uh, around at this room um, I think clearly you're all um, millennials um, <laughs> and a little older and um, it is it is uh, the reality of our of our Jewish world I have the privilege of traveling quite extensively and, and seeing who shows up, and who shows up to what. And um, across the board, I think it's safe to say that we show up, whether we are Gen Xers, or Boomers, or Millennials, or whatever the next ones are, because we are hungry for meaning. And we show up not just because we have to, in most cases, I'm assuming that you are here because you want to. So what I'd like to talk about is what is it that we want? when we come together to engage in what is arguably Judaism's oldest sport. Um, and I'm gonna take some guesses about what that is in a moment. Um, so we're gonna um, look at some texts together. I hope that this will be very interactive. I wanna share with you um, thoughts about not just what is Judaism's oldest sport, but what is really at stake for this moment in Jewish life in this country, in the world, what can we do to better bridge the traditions we come from and the generations that are coming after us and make meaning of our lives in rich ways? So let me start off with a question that has no right answer. What do you think, dear people, whom I mostly don't know, is the most troubling challenge for Jewish existence at this moment in time? What is our biggest headache as Jews? Anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism, okay. Like I said, there's not gonna be one answer. Disinterest. Disinterest, so apathy, walking away from, uh-huh. Intermarriage. Finding common ground. Israel. Losing the young people. You're all getting so depressed. They're like, what, what have we come to? <laughs> yes? Um, confusion about Jews. The divisions. Well, you heard Rabbi Shmuley. Even when we crossed the sea, there were 12 different lanes. There was like premium and you know, economy and that tribe and this tribe. Nothing's changed. Um, all true. And I'm sure our list can go on, and you're going to be up at night thinking, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. 
Um, I'd like to suggest, as somebody who grew up in Orthodox Israel and has spent the last 20 years in Flexidox, uh, New York, that um, the, of the many serious challenges that we have mentioned, Jewish illiteracy, that some of you alluded to, is really at the core of what causes us to be disengaged, lesser connected, divided, concerned about the small stuff, and not attuned to the big picture. And lack of literacy or Jewish illiteracy is something that on the one hand has always been, but historical perspective and sociological research shows that it's really the last century, especially in this country, that due to a whole set of factors has resulted in several generations of people in the Jewish community for whom, as we just heard, the Jewish story, the alphabet of Jewish meaning is lesser known or very much diluted. So if you don't know, why would you care? And if you don't care, why would you show up? And if you don't show up, why would it matter who you get married to or what holiday you celebrate or what you become a member of? So yes, we've got a challenge on our hands. And that's the bad news. The good news is that for people as old as ours, one of the oldest tribes on the planet, there are so many people, more than ever in history, in fact, women and men, young and old, Jewish and Jewish, who are showing up in Jewish spaces like this one to catch up to delve in, to lean in. Torah is being celebrated in the 21st century like it probably never was before in Jewish history. Partially because there are more women than ever before participating in the conversation. We're leveling the playing field. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And uh, people of all ages are involved, and we haven't even talked about the digital. So there's bad news and good news. One more question. What do you think is the one Jewish factor that has kept us going as a people for these many thousands of years? If you were to think like one thing that kept Jews Jews, go back five generations, 10, 20, 30. Be very specific. So taught what? The book, the reading, ritual, identification. Passover, study, and just, just gather answers. Hmm? Shabbat. Hanukkah. The Shema, prayer, or a specific prayer. No one's saying brisket, that's interesting. <laughs> you were going to. I, I watched you thinking bagel, bagel, bagel. Um, it might be the gastro-Judaic. It may have been liturgy. It may have been Shabbat or Pesach. It may have been dreidels or candles. Um, I'll go back to the first answer that came up. I think it's Torah. I think the biggest problem is the lack of literacy, and the biggest gift is literacy, the story. And what I would like to share with you is the story, not so much my personal story, I'm happy to talk about that maybe later in the Q&A, but how I discovered that the central opportunity for how we tell our story, how we share our story, 
challenge our story, retell and reinterpret our story, is the key opportunity for how to make sure that whatever Jewish is, and as it evolves and changes, keeps on happening. And maybe our one shot at continuing the legacy that we've inherited as it is radically redefined. And since we mentioned Pesach, I'll throw that into my overture, into the introduction, and welcome you to think about where we're going to be um, a weekend and a half from now. And what is it about the Seder table that according to the 2016 Pew Report is one of the three things that Jews do when they Jew in the 21st century? And you can guess what the two other ones? What are the three things that most Jews and those who love them do in the 21st century as a Jewish must-haves? So Passover Seder, attending a Passover Seder across generations, something Jews do. So Yom Kippur, showing up, usually hating it, but showing up. And the third, okay, the third's going to be fun. What do you think? Hanukkah, not top three. Purim, definitely not top three, which is kind of, kind of stupid if you think about it. I mean, what's not to love? Bingo. Attending a bar mitzvah. Both for Jews and people who are not Jewish. Bar mitzvah. A rite of passage in an age that badly needs more rites of passages. Yom Kippur, an opportunity of reflection, whether you believe in God or not. A chance to really reflect, to be contemplative, present, and Passover. So brisket and matzah ball aside, what's Passover about? The story. It's about a story. It's a night of storytelling. Our ancient rabbis were so smart in the post-temporal reality introducing the holiday, reinventing it, interrupting it, to not be about sacrifice, but to be about a home dinner, to be about a dinner theater, DIY, at home, with an ancient story that can only be alive if you really take it apart. The obligation of Pesach pardon me if I'm going to break anybody's heart here, is not to read Maxwell Howe's cover to cover. <laughs> that is like a tragic mistake. It is an anthology. The Passover Haggadah was never meant to be read cover to cover in the same way that should you like to cook out of a recipe book, out of a cookbook, and you happen to choose a poultry section, and you got a dinner for 12, you're not going to use every piece of recipe from the poultry section. That's a lot of chicken. You're going to choose maybe one recipe. Passover Haggadah was meant as an anthology for pick and choose what you will tell this year. And the text is only the pretext for the conversation that you will have around the table about what does it mean to talk about freedom and liberation and oppression and tyranny and fear and courage in 2019. Because Pesach 2019 is not like Pesach 2009, and most certainly not like 1948 or 1008. So the storytelling of Pesach, this biblical tale, is there for us to ask hard questions about literacy, about belonging, about identity, about who's around the table and who's not, 
And at the core of this ritual, the top three things we still do is the power of story and storytelling. So it's storytelling that I want to talk to you about. And I want to introduce you to a chapter in the Bible that I'm going to take a wild guess most of you have not read, because most people haven't. Um, anybody here familiar with the book of Nehemiah? And by familiar, I mean read it. I'm seeing a couple of brave nods. Uh, well, for those of you who have, welcome back. For those of you who haven't, welcome to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, chapter 8. We'll go there in a moment. Um, I want to give it a couple more little introductions before we look at this chapter that describes the birth of Jewish storytelling. The emergence of the moment in our lives where we tap into story and what I'd like to suggest are five tools for how to do a better job, whether you are a grandma or a rabbi or both, whether you're going to do it at the Passover Seder or at somebody's bar bat mitzvah, how do we do a better job of transmitting our stories, interrupting our stories, and create, creating a culture in which our, leg our legacy is truly alive and not just regurgitated and read cover to cover? Really come alive. That's the premise. So we're going to start with a quote from a Nigerian author. Ben Okri is a Nigerian uh, author, Booker Prize winner, um, who's written a lot about storytelling. He's coming from the tribal African tradition. And think about what it's like to be part of a tribal culture where the storytelling happens around the campfire, where storytelling is what creates the essence of values, the reservoirs of values. Think about bedtime stories, right? Does anybody still do bedtime stories here? Maybe that's CNN before you go to bed. That too is storytelling. And think about what it's like to go to the local storyteller. Think about the ritual of storytelling. Sometimes that happens in the therapy office. That too is storytelling. Certainly in the movie plex. There's an argument where the, a Netflix movie at home has the same ritualistic gravitas as going to the movies. But that too, right? There's a beginning, there's an end. Stories have ritual. And rituals are the containers of how a story comes alive. So Okri writes, nations and people are largely the stories they feed, feed themselves. If they tell themselves stories that are lies, they will suffer the future consequences of those lies. If they tell themselves stories that face their own truths, they will free their own histories for future flowerings. So think what it's like to live in a society, in a home, in a community, where we recycle stories, origin stories, master stories, identity stories that do not reflect our reality. Think about this own country and the, you know, the, I, I was on a plane this morning and watched uh, the movie that I think was the Oscar winner, The Green, uh, the green Book. I'm, I'm bad with these things, but I had a movie about this in the 1960s. And, um, you know, systemic racism is not quite out the window, even though we've made giant strides. What kind of a story does a nation tell itself where that is an element of its identity? And what kind of a story does a nation tell itself when that identity shifts? Think about what's been happening with LGBT. 
Think of what's happening in this country with immigration. Think about the stories in your own families. Do we tell ourselves stories that set us up for human success and flourishing, or are we recycling trauma and repression and values that may have been held dear to our ancestors 50 or 100 years ago, but nowadays feel absurd? Right? We're coming upon 2020, 100 years since the vote. Right? Today, you know, I learned recently that in Switzerland, in 1971, women voted. 1971, Switzerland. So the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, the myths, become the reservoirs of our values, often the containers of our laws. And sometimes when we talk about stories, it feels like stories don't matter. You know the Yiddish term for stories? Bobomysis. Grandmother tales. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Grandma. Those stories are where our values live. So I want to listen to the stories we tell ourselves as Jews and how we tell our stories. And the text we will look at is the very first official time in our history that we publicly told each other our story. And that is not Mount Sinai, because we can't prove that that happened. That is a, in fact, story. But in the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah, there's a description as close to history as we can of the first official Torah telling in history. And on that day, a few very interesting things happen. And that's what I want to focus about. OK? Any questions so far? Or something that seems to you weird or suggesting a comment? I'm interactive. I like it. Yes. And your name, if you can. Great. So I'll, I'll repeat your question, if, I, if I'm correct. What, what's the difference between telling stories that give us values that drive us forward? And when is it that we tell stories that repeat or recycle patterns that we no longer want to live by? That's a great question. Have that question juggling in the, in the room. We'll come back to it at the end. Because I think as Jews, we ought to ask ourselves those questions. The Bible is simultaneously a storybook that contains the most noble values and also contains recipes for how to stone people to death. And that people, because of sexual choice, are an abomination. And women don't count. So how are we recycling stories that have value? And how do we talk back to those stories and retell them in ways that are healthy and reflect our evolving culture? That's exactly the question. So thank you, Alex. We'll come back to that. That's OK. Think of, you know what? I know we're also used to slides. Go back 100 years, <laughs> right? Before photocopying, before, before PowerPoints. Heck, go back 600 years before Gutenberg, where a bunch of people sitting in a room and printing hadn't happened. Listen, the oral tradition. I, I, I invite you to put it down. You, you don't even have to look at the sheet. I'll do a good job doing it out loud. You are welcome to. Drop it. Here's where we are in time. The year is roughly 450 BCE. We're in the fifth century before Common Era. We are in Jerusalem, 
Yerushalayim, Jerusalem at this point is a dump. It is a dump because it is about to be the capital of the second temple, Judaism. It's only been about a couple of decades that the Judeans from the Babylonian exile, from the first temple, are allowed back in their province, in Yehud, as it is now known in Persian. About 100 years ago, the first temple of Solomon was burned. The king, descendant of David, exiled. Many were killed, many were enslaved. Judaism as we knew it, the Judean existence was over. Jews ended up in Babylon. You know the song, on the rivers of Babylon. That's that. They live okay. They're not enslaved. They got cable. They're working. Life's okay. And then Babylon gets taken over by Persia. The Persians have a new empire and a new political strategy. The Persian political strategy is that as the biggest empire in the area with a lot of ethnic minorities, they're not going to subjugate the minorities but making them all practice one law and one religion. They're going to allow the minorities to go back to their places of origin. They're going to allow them to practice their weird, quaint religions as long as they pay a lot of taxes to the Persian Empire and do not have any other competing political structure. The first ethnic minority, as far as we know, to enjoy this privilege are the Judeans. So King Cyrus, Koresh, comes out and says, Judeans, go to Jerusalem. And guess who goes? Not a lot of people. Not the Federation executives, <laughs> not the machers, not the board, not the VIPs. Very poor people and people who got nothing to lose. Um, it is described in the book of Ezra as the big campaign that kind of doesn't make it. Sort of sounds like very early Zionism early 20th century, here went the young socialists and the misfits and the ones who left the shtetl. Eventually it became bigger. So at this point in history, the Jewish experiment of rebuilding Jerusalem is a failure. The Persian authorities are upset because the reason they're doing this is not because they care so much for Jewish continuity. Jerusalem is sitting on a very important place trade-wise and politics-wise. They want the tax, they want stability. But the Jerusalem walls have not been built. There's too much instability. The temple had been built, but it's small and kind of lame. Um, and the people are not building a strong sense of community. There is a crisis. The leadership is trying to figure out what to do. So plan A, and I invite you to, if, you, if you've got a strong stomach, to pour yourself a drink and go read the last few chapters of the book of Ezra in a Bible near you. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah create a, an attempt to build a strong Jewish community. And they're creating for the first time what we might consider an ethnic sense of Judaism by insisting that all Jewish men who are married to women who are not Jewish, whether they are Persian or local Semitic, they will divorce those women and the women and their children will be sent away. Terrible strategy, breaking families for the sake of the Zera Israel, Jewish 
race really doesn't exist before. A list is described in the book uh, of the families whose fate this is. The only issue is most of those families are the VIPs, the priests, the business leaders, the elite. And the list ends at some point, and the book of Ezra ends without any resolution. It seems like that solution did not work in creating a cohesive community. If anything, it created discontinuity. So the book of Ezra ends with a crisis. The walls aren't up. The temple is there, but nobody is going. People are married to people who are not Jewish and not paying taxes to the temple. Sounds familiar? Welcome to Judaism, 2019. Except we're in Jerusalem, and it's 2,500 years ago. So the leaders are trying to figure out how do we build community? How do we create a systemic sense of unity? Out of all these people with the trauma of the exile and living in this place that is trying to create itself, what are we going to do that's going to make us a we? They're going to make us accountable. That's going to give us tools for personal and public thriving. Ah, with that crisis, we're hitting our text. So we are in the fall in Jerusalem. If you've been, the weather is perfect, not too hot, not too cold. We are very early in the morning, and we are gathering in a place that we will discover in a moment is the birth of Torah. Ready? OK. So let's read. Um, the Hebrew is there in front of you. Again, by the way, the, the invitation to not follow along in the, on the text stands. You can just listen. It's there on the screen, and AJ is going to help us. Uh, but not yet. You've got time. And it's there on the sheet, and I'm just going to read it. Um, All the people gathered themselves together as one into the open place that was before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the Torah of Moses, which God had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the Torah before the congregation, both men and women, and all those who could understand, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it. In front of the open place that was before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the Torah. So, question, my friends. Where is the first Torah reading ritual in history taking place? Drop the pin on your GPS map. So first of all, you're telling me you're reading time. So you're already a good Jewish reader because you're saying, wait, the first day of the seventh month, I know what that means. That means Rosh Hashanah. But for them, illiterate, unaffiliated, disconnected, it's, I don't know, October. They're on the Babylonian Persian calendar. They don't have Rosh Hashanah on their calendar. It's likely that Rosh Hashanah did not exist yet as a Jewish holiday. It was in the Torah, but we're not sure the Torah exists yet, believe it or not which is why it is used as a Persian time unit. So that's the time. But the place, look at the place. Where is this happening? So in Ju the Watergate. Okay, what is the Watergate? Forget Nixon. <laughs> what happens at a Watergate? Fertility. Uh, okay, say more. Okay. Oh, so we're talking about mikveh and we're talking about fertility. You guys went erotic very quickly, okay? 
but uh, which is, that's fine, that's fine. This is an adult education group. Um, so it's the well. What happens at the well? It's where you get water. It's the cooler, right? It's the water cooler. It's also the watering hole. It's where business happens. It's where romance happens, right? Jacob meets Rachel at the well. Moses meets Zipporah at the well, right? By the way, I don't know if you know this, but in English, that place where people well used to before, you know, online, people went to hang out and meet each other. It was called a bar, B-A-R. What's well in Hebrew? Be'er, B-A-R, just saying. So there's something about, no, but this is, this is like, where is the place where we go to socialize? A bar, a coffee shop, a central place. Depends on whether you're in a village, in a city. I don't know Phoenix to know where you all go. But notice Ezra, who is our priest and scribe and strategic leader here. He's thinking, okay, I want to constitute a ritual of storytelling where I take out our ancestral story, whether it's been written before or not, we'll argue in a moment, and I want to tell it to the mass. I want to give us a story that we can create unity and literacy and belonging. Hey, everybody, come to temple. Yeah, that's not going to work. So he goes to town square. Think about the strategy. I'm from New York where we say location, location, location. Maybe it's the same here. Ezra doesn't invite the people to his religious territory. He meets them where they are. He goes to the mall or the Watergate or whatever that square is. Why? Two reasons. Number one, look who the audience is. This is not the men. This is not the rabbis. It isn't the priests. In the fifth century BCE, you would think patriarchy is kicking it with men only. Uh-uh. This is a co-ed group. Men, women, and all those who could understand, which might mean 13 and up. It might mean the many people who were not Jewish who were living with their Jewish families. The scholars are in debate about what this terminology is. But he wants to meet them where they're at, both geographically and intellectually, ideologically. So he meets them where they're at, instead of expecting them to come to him. Want to transmit a Jewish story in the 21st century? You want to make sure your grandchildren or you are involved? How do we meet you where you're at? Intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically. What would be a Watergate like this in Phoenix 2019? I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't know the city. But, uh, but, oh, WhatsApp. Sorry, I thought you said that. Okay, so that's an interesting question. What is it like to gather digitally? Right? Was it FaceTime? Like, what is the digital? It's only a couple of decades old. How do we meet online? And does it have that same sense of smelling and holding and seeing? It might, but not yet. But physically, here you are here at, at this program, right? You're in, we're in a temple, but this is a gathering, like we're actually in a Watergate of sorts. Plus, there was decent wine before, so check. Think about your own lives. Where do you go? So. Right? So imagine going to a Costco and there's somebody standing in the middle and said, I got something to tell you people. Maybe it's political and maybe it's environmental and maybe it's a preacher. I don't know. I'm in New York City where every time I go into a subway station, certainly the big ones, 
there is a Scientologist and there's an Evangelical and there is Chabad and like, right? The public place is a place where people are competing for a narrative. So Ezra does that. So our first principle in thinking about how do we in the 21st century make the Jewish story alive and meaningful is location. Where do we tell the stories? Who is the audience we want to meet? And how do we meet ourselves, both physically and conceptually, where we are met? So many of the people in my community in New York who are not engaged with Jewish life yet are yearning need to be met in a level that meets them where they are. Maybe that's humor and maybe that's digital. We meet in bars and in wineries and in performance venues. We meet people where they are. And then we slowly bridge the gap. So location really matters. Archaeologists argue whether the Watergate was right outside the second temple or was it about a mile down the road where the Shiloh, the Silwan is, the spring of Jerusalem. In other words, is the religious and civic space the same or are they very different? Interesting discussion in separation of church and state 2,500 years ago. But what we know here is that the first Torah service in history happens in the marketplace. Happens in the mall. Public space. Interesting. And the audience is mixed. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And then here comes another surprising factor. Did you notice what is the object that is being pulled up and used in the second verse here? Sefer Torah Moshe, the book or the scroll of the Torah of Moses. What are we talking about? Hmm? But... What is Sefer Torah Moshe? The scroll of the Torah of Moses. Have you heard of it? The five books? That, that scroll that's behind me in the ark? Well, guess what? This is the first time in the Bible that the term Sefer Torah Moshe shows up. One second. Torah shows up in Deuteronomy as a proscription. There will be a Torah, a teaching. But it isn't ascribed to Moses, and it's never called a Sefer. Sefer in biblical Hebrew is a scroll. And the innovation of the fifth century BCE is writing things down on scrolls. Because about 100 or 200 years ago, prior to this, the big technological innovation of the Assyrians was writing stuff down on clunky tin tablets. It's expensive, it's heavy, it's a pain in the tochas to delete. And to schlep from place to place. But about a hundred years prior to what moment we're talking about, the Persians embellished the technique of writing stuff on papyrus scrolls. And the Persian myths and laws began to be written on scrolls that are easy to transport, fairly cheap. You can delete and write on the other side. And so Ezra is probably modeling the Torah on the technological innovation that he brought from the big empire. And as far as we know and scholars think, what's astonishing about the first Torah moment in history is that he's using technology not just to wow the people, 
but to make sure that there's a way to transmit the literacy in a responsible way that could be authored and replicated. This is a Torah scroll. We don't know what was on it. Maybe the five books, maybe just Deuteronomy. Did Ezra write it? Did Ezra edit it? Scholars are still on the fence about this. Depends which part of Judaism you come from today. But what's one thing everybody agrees on, this is the first Torah scroll in history. Imagine yourselves in town square in Jerusalem on that day, and you've heard stories, maybe Joseph, and maybe Sarah, maybe Moses, and maybe Noah, but now you're used to the oral Torah, because everything was told from father to son, from mother to daughter, from storyteller to storyteller, and suddenly this guy is standing on a stage, and he's holding this thing, and he's reading from it, and he says, hey, this is our book, people. Welcome to your national story. Imagine your wow. Remember the first time you saw an iPad? I was going to say computer, but you know. So the second thing that's happened here, and I'll get to your question in a moment, is if you want to transmit the Jewish story or any story, location really matters. Where are you going to tell the story? Who would you want to be the audience? The second is how are you going to transmit it? How do ideas get transmitted in an object? So whether I use a screen, or we use a print, whether we're going to use a little screen for the kids, or whether we're going to do old school storytelling around the campfire, how we transmit an idea really matters. Ezra creates a ritual, and he creates an object. And if you think about what keeps Judaism alive 2,500 years later, there aren't many things Jews do that still happens the same way. We still use a scroll. Most people have moved up to scroll up and scroll down with their thumbs. But we still use those fast forward and rewind things. And we still use this ritual that he created. Pause and think how amazing what we're looking at here. Shabbat has changed so many ways. What God is has evolved. Hebrew, maybe. But this ritual, this object, is still around. He created something very, very systemic here. And I think we can learn from it about how do we want the next 2,500 years to look. But here comes the most exciting part. So far, this was just the, you know, the appetizer. I want to take uh, time for a question. Yes? Yes. So, so King Yoshiao is about 100 or so years earlier. It's described in the Book of Kings. While they're doing renovations in the temple in Jerusalem, he finds a fragment of the Torah. He brings it to Hulda, who is the old prophetess. And he says, hey, what the heck is this? And she says, I think it's part of the Torah. And uh, he rips his hands, and because of that, creates a very monotheistic uh, revolution. Um, but what does not happen there is a public spectacle where the entire community is invited to the telling of Torah, to the storytelling. We don't know. We think there were many fragments. This is the actual first time the book is described as Sefer Torah Moshe. This is the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu. Hold your question for a moment. I want to read two more paragraphs, and then we'll take more questions. Okay? So you get it? When town square, it's 
the fall. They're there from early in the morning till noon. He's reading from it. Look at what's happening next. Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Matitiah, Shema, Aniyah, Uriah, Chilkiah, Maasiah, on the right hand, on the left hand, Pedayah, Mishael, Malchiah, Chushum, Chush Bedana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Um, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, a little bit like I am now. And, he, and when he opened it, the people stood up. And Ezra blessed Adonai, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands and bowed their heads and worshipped God with their faces to the ground. So first of all, we have very early Jewish yoga here. They're moving, they're bowing, they're in their bodies. It's not just like, please rise. It's a little more active. Um, there's a bunch of people with funny names, some of them Persian, some of them Hebrew, on stage next to Ezra. Who do you think those people are? What might their purpose be? Okay, so the, they're the communal leaders. And why are they there? Great, so basically a show of authority, right? Flanked by the power. Um, one, two, three, four. There's only five chairs on the stage here. You know, I'm sure it's the president, the vice president, the treasurer, etc., but or something, right? But we still do that. So Ezra is not just standing there as a religious leader, he's standing there as a political leader. He's got the maybe it's the tribal leaders, it might be the funders, right? A question I often wonder. He said to them, guys, I need money to write this first Torah scroll. And um, I needed to help underwrite it. And uh, you're not getting a plank or anything. You're getting a mention in the Bible, right? How much is that gift worth? So, um, and here they are. Those names are around. We know who those people are. And they do show up in other parts of the book. By the way, four of them are on the list of the divorced families. Oh, interesting, right? There's a whole subdrama here. Let's skip that. So on stage, tribal leaders, Ezra, reading the people are saying, amen, amen. It's not just a lecture. It's a religious, spiritual moment. And here come my heroes. Uh, next slide, if we may. Yeshua, Vani, Sheravya, Yamin, Akuv, Shabtai, Hodiah, Maasiya, Klita, Azariah, Yozavad, Hanan, Pelaya, and the Levites enabled the people to understand the Torah while the people stood in their places. So they read in the book, in the Torah of God clearly, and gave the interpretation so that they understood the reading. All right, so now you've got 13 people with funny names, some of them Persian, some of them Hebrew. It's like Chris and Andrea and Moshe and Yossi and, you know, Nigel, whatever, modern community, we're all mixed. And they are 13 people with specific names. They are mentioned. And Levites, we don't know how many, they are the technicians of the sacred from the temple that's next door, where this ritual isn't happening, are mevinim et ha'am Torah ve'ha'am al-omdam. That's the Hebrew, right? So if those of you understand Hebrew, if I ask you, atemevinim, do you understand? So those who have been who said yes, and the others are like, subtitles, please. Mevinim, um, the word maven, like a bagel maven or a fashion maven, it comes from this. This is the first time the word mevin shows up in our 
history, and it's a profession. When I'm talking about Jewish sports, these are the athletes. They are the bridges. They make understanding happen. They are fill in the blank, translating, interpreting, sign languaging. We don't know, but here's all we know. Ezra is on stage reading in Hebrew. Amen. Everybody in the crowd doesn't speak Hebrew because they didn't, because they spoke Aramaic. That was the lingua franca. So they don't know what the heck he's writing about, talking about. The same way you go to, I don't know, Torah service or Chinese movie. Or the opera before supertitles. Right? So these guys, these Mevinim, look at it. What are they doing? They are walking around the crowd translating or interpreting while the people stand so they can understand. What do you think they're doing? We don't know, so your guess is as good as any rabbi in history. What do you imagine is happening here? Let's say there's 5,000 people in town square. It's a generous read. They've been standing for a couple of hours. Ezra is reading in Hebrew. The Mevinim, the mavens are, what do you see? So they're basically repeating it out loud. Ah, so you're saying it's a PA system, but it's also a translation system to different languages of the local needs. Okay, those are two different purposes. Okay, good. What else? Yes. What about acting it out? Acting it out, little vaudeville. Early Jerusalem showbiz, right? Jews have always been good in the business. So storytelling, pre-Spielberg. Okay, they're acting it out. God knows how that worked out. Depends also what he read, right? Okay, what else might be happening? Yes. So teacher's aid, making sure, walking around, that everybody understands what's going on. Yes? They were dancing? Great, because they were so excited. People, this is the Torah. Right, so they're dancing. I envision it to be like listening to our rabbi who tells us, here's this crazy story about leprosy. So what does it mean to, to me? Right. Great, so basically the way modern rabbis interpret, sermonize, translate ancient Torah and Bronze Age values to today, that is what these people are doing. Good. We'll get to the emotion in a moment. Thank you. So these people are connectors. So look, folks, this is a mystery. We don't know what these people did, but we know that in the very first time in our history, the Torah is publicly proclaimed as a text, as a story, as a ritual, that scripture comes alive. You guys don't seem that impressed. When I give this lecture in Christian contexts, people weep. Really? This is the first time the Bible comes alive? Our Bible? Oh my God. You're a little more blasé. Okay, fine. But um, I think it's pretty exciting. These mavens are making it happen. They're translating it. Think of yourself watching a movie without supertitles, right? I don't know, it's called subtitles. Makes no difference. They're doing something very dramatic because here's the written Torah and here's the spoken Torah. Torah Shebichtav, 
Torah Shebe'al Peh. What basically Ezra is modeling here is the only way for Torah to live. Because if it's just a written text, think about the Constitution, then it's frozen in time. But if you can amend it in every generation, if you can talk back to it, if the mavens can interpret it, because Persian or Aramaic, English or German, 21st century or 20th century, then it's a living text. It's Torah Shebikhtav, the text, PDF, as is, canon, don't touch it, holy, and what the rabbis do, what the preschool teachers do, what books today do, what movies do, what translators do, what mavens do. Make it come alive. And sometimes that means arguing with it. It means translating it radically. Saying, wait a minute, in the 21st century, when Leviticus says, you talked about, about leprosy, right? Wait, what is that for us today? How do I make sense of this? Is it a metaphor for how we alienate each other because we're afraid of each other? Is it about skin disease? Because the rabbis talk about being a psychological state. When Leviticus says that same sex is an abomination, in the 21st century, how do I read that Torah text in synagogue? I got to translate it. I got to maven it. I got to say, you know what? That may have been the socio-political reality of my ancestors, but nowadays I refuse to say that abomination is the reason for me to castigate a family member or a loved one. So we've got to reread it. And same for women's rights, and same for sacrifices, and same for a lot of weird things like killing witches that's in the Torah. Without these mavens, we'd be stuck with a museum piece that is anachronistic and hostile to our evolving values. And the story, as the question you asked before, Alex, is a story of old values that seem not in sync with who we are. Ezra creates the tradition that will become Midrash, that will become Talmud, that will become the oral tradition of talking back to the text and interrupting it. Because if it's just a written text, then we are frozen in what was, as is. He gives us the option for as if. And it could be very radical. I see questions. Hold them for a moment. I want to finish the text, and then I'll open it up. So our third principle, how to make the Jewish story alive, location. Go to the people. Don't wait for them to come to you. Geographically, location-wise, and ideologically. Second is transmission, technology, ritual. Make sure that it's got an idea, lives in a container. Third, translation. Make it come alive. Not just linguistically, conceptually. What worked for my grandparents ain't going to work for me. Last year's Seder ain't this year's Seder. It's got to change and be translated. Reality changes. Here comes the fourth. You talked about emotion. See what happens next. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who told, taught the people, said to all the people, hey, shh. This is holy to the Lord, your God. Don't mourn, don't weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Torah. Wow. First Torah service in history. And the people are taking out their tissues, whatever those were made of. Why do you think they're weeping? Why the tears? Again, we don't know. So your kishkas on these are as good as anybody else's. 
Why tears? So weeping because of spiritual connection. Okay. Sorry? Connecting to Sana. They're like, oh my God, here we are. We're connected to our past. We have a story. We have a narrative. We have something to hold us together. Yes? Yes, we're back in Jerusalem. We heard about this. And here's the story of our ancestors and is embodied. So the body reacts to the embodied text. Any other reasons why do you think they might be crying? Identification. Identification. Shock. What are they shocked at? We never knew. We never knew. Never knew what? So here's the question. Imagine that you are Ezra's Maven squad. You get to decide what is the pilot season for what is going to be the longest running rerun in Jewish history. Every year. Year, you know, boom, Torah, on a cycle, 2,500 years. What is going to be the pilot season? What are you going to read on that day in Jerusalem's Watergate that's going to hook them, that they're going to come back and binge it every week? Is it going to be the Exodus? Is it going to be Genesis, the beginning of the world? How about the binding of Isaac? It happened right here, right in Jerusalem, right? A little fear always works. Tear jerker, um, the Ten Commandments? Well, how about the laws? Starting tomorrow morning, people, Book of Deuteronomy, circumcision. That would make me cry. Uh, we thought it's about bagels. It's not about bagels, my friend. It's about more. What they might be hearing here is a set of laws. So maybe they're crying because of connection, maybe they're crying because of woe. What have we gotten ourselves into? And maybe both. But what I want to mention here is that whoever wrote this chapter in Nehemiah didn't care that much about what was read. They wanted us to know that when Torah comes alive, it better make you cry. That if you're not involved with emotional intelligence, if your heart isn't wide awake in your Jewish life, if it's just intellectual data and thou shalt and thou shalt not, then who cares? Tears make it into the first Torah telling in history. Why the tears? I don't know. But the tears were mentioned. And so my fourth principle for how to make the Jewish story and literacy alive after location and transmission and translation is emotion. What Spielberg knows. Tear jerkers. Heart. Story. Make me weep. Make me laugh. Talk to my kishkas and my heart, not just my head. It's not just law. It's what storytelling does. Ezra got it. For whatever reason, they're weeping, and those tears are in the Bible. Not the content, the tears. Which leads us to the most important principle of the day, where Rabbi Shmuley is a master of understanding. See what happens next. Everyone's weeping. Then he says to them, all right, people, we're done here. Go your way, eat fat foods, and drink sweet beverages, and, notice this, Send portions to them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of God is your strength. And the people went on to eat and drink and send gifts 
and rejoiced greatly, for they had understood the teachings that had been told to them. So Ezra and Nehemiah say to them, okay, we just gave you the Torah. Welcome to Sinai. It is yours, tears and all. Now go home, have Kiddush, do a Lechaim, feed the poor. You want to build community? Before we build the walls, let's build community. Who in your neighborhood needs a meal right now? What is at the core of the Torah, whatever he read that day? Love others as you love yourself. Remember the orphan, remember the widow, remember the immigrant, remember the other. Take care of each other. Torah chesed. Go home, feed each other, build community, come back tomorrow. And that's what they do. That's the rest of the chapter. So the fifth principle, why bother with Torah? Activation. Torah and Derech Eretz. Torah in the service of justice. Torah in the service of a healthy community. You know what happens after this chapter? They will come back, they will start doing Sukkot, they're gonna build the walls of Jerusalem. They're gonna build a society at least initially grounded in justice. Because there's a story and there's a ritual to hold it. Now whether you are synagogue goers or not, whether you go to bar mitzvahs, Passover seders, or Yom Kippur's or not, let's agree that the majority of American Jews do not participate in these rituals on a regular basis. What we began talking about earlier this evening, the lack of literacy, is because we lost our stories and we lost our rituals and our justice work is often disjointed from our spiritual work and we don't cry from Torah. And there is something that needs to be readdressed in where we tell our stories, what stories we tell, how we recycle the past, what is the bottom line? And can we connect our water gates and connecting places like tonight to our deepest human values, to our community building, to challenge our digital reality that both connects and alienates us and celebrates a tradition that is at least 2,500 years old where we come to tell our stories as they are written and as we must speak back to them. And in every generation, retell. Interrupt, not just interpret. When you sit around Passover Seders in a week and a half telling a biblical story that is either fact or fiction, I hope you don't just read the story as it was. I hope you talk about 2019 and what is the metaphor of slave and slave master. Who's today's pharaoh and where's the mosaic voice? How are we, each of us, enslaved by our own greed and digital and sugar and oil and fear? And where's our Moses inside? It doesn't have to be political. It could be psychological. Because if we're just reading the Torah as it was, then no one's going to show up next year. But if you're going to interrupt the text, then it comes alive. And then the tears come. And then the face-to-face -face happens. And then the Torah is a real text. And then it matters. And then literacy happens. And engagement happens. And our worst fears about intermarriage, and they don't care, and they don't show up, true. Life happens. Challenges happen. But if you've got a core story that holds you, that you can come back to, that grounds you in value, then there's something to work from. And I'm preaching to the choir, because you're here tonight. 
but think about all those who are not here tonight and how we need to work together as a community to bring our stories and our storytelling back to the forefront of our focus as a community at large so that we walk our talk and have a life of value. Well, the last principle here is about look each other face to face. Let's build a community of justice and love and literacy and freedom that we were meant to build, guided by love and less by fear. So that, my friends, is the story of the first storytelling story in Jewish history, lesser known. Now you know it. You're implicated. Pass it on. We have a job to do to make sure that this holy book, not just as it is written, but as it's told in every generation, is more alive. I think that's going to help us with future generations and for all things right now. Thank you very much. So, questions? Do we have time? Oh, wow. So, please. Of course. Where does Torah This is Torah Shabbat Peh. Ezra, the Mevinim, are the first activators of the oral Torah, the Torah of the mouth. They are it. After them will come Mishnah and Talmud and you know, rabbis and sermonizers, they are the first ones officially recorded as the one who speak the Torah and don't read the Torah. I like to call it Torah Shebaal Po. It's the Torah of here and now. He creates it. He creates the methodology, right? He never gets the credit for it. But there you go. Now, now, now you know. He's also a complicated character. I'm not, you know, sanctifying him. But he gets credit for that. Please. Okay. Um, so let me collect a couple of questions and let's see if they'll be thematic, but I'll write them down. Happy to tell you about Lab Shul very briefly. Okay. Yes. Do you want a mic over there? Or no? okay. Yes, please. What a great question. Great. Because in personal note, I'm very, I, I feel like I'm on the conservative side as far as not the economy or the peace, but as far like I feel like... I'm great question. Great. Thank you. Let's take one more and then I'll answer a few. How often did you get to say that? For 24 hours. And I was with 200 fo uh, young folks in their 20s. And I made an offer which um, ended up being more important than I thought, which is if you have any one need for a one-on-one -on -one time, let me know. And a whole line of folks wanted to talk. And 100% of them had the exact same question. Am I a Jew? Right? I'm from Poland, and Israel is, is not accepting my Jewish status. I'm from Iowa, and I found out my grandmother converted before my mother was born. I'm from Australia, and they're telling me 
that my lineage is, is in jeopardy. Uh, so I wonder, like, if you're, and I see this locally also, this question of not even do I want to be Jewish, but am I actually accepted? How much of this is a, is a product of uh, this, the establishments becoming more exclusive, and how much of this is about a need for more solidified identity among millennials, and how are we sort of navigating these status issues? Um, that's, that was a nuclear option, Shmuley, thank you. Um, we're just going to talk about that for the rest of the night, and we're going to need a little more than the Muscato there for that. But um, okay, let me, let me answer these three questions, and I'll get to the lab show one at the end, if you don't mind. Um, the question of tradition versus innovation, where is, the, like, where is the sweet spot and where do we go off? So. About 500 years after Ezra's innovation, the Mishnah and then the Talmud begins codifying the Torah service. And for about 1,500 years, every time Torah was read out loud, it was done in the following way. You would read a line in Hebrew from the Torah in trope, and then comes the maven and says, so, hey, everybody, guess what? This is a story about God talking to Moses, and this time it's... Leprosy! Shabbat shalom. Right? So, I'm not kidding, right? The Hebrew is as is. PDF, canonized, tamim, conserving, preserving, respecting. That's the left side of the stage. Right side of the stage, translation. And the model and the ping pong is, oh, I get it. Here's the art, here's the explanation. Here's what I inherited, here's what I'm doing. That format that Chazal created, and that's how I do it at Labshul and elsewhere, is making sure that you get the ping pong. Written Torah, spoken Torah. As is, always, don't mess with it, and 2019. That's one example. Um, think again about the Passover Haggadah. You might want to read the Haggadah that your parents gave to you, including the funny jokes that always come and the wine stain on that page. But to make the Seder come alive for your kids, who have a different reality than your great-grandparents, you're going to have to translate it. You're going to have to bring in some new props. You're going to have to talk about today. Otherwise, you lost them. So the very sweet spot is somewhere between speaking to the room here and knowing that I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants. And I think that is the challenge for modern jury, and has, by the way, always been the challenge for jury. The 50-50 Loyalty to the past and loyalty to the present. The future takes care of itself. Happy to discuss that more. Um, Shmuley, your question is indeed a nuclear option. And I would say one of the things that um, my teacher and yours and ours, uh, Darren Kleinberg, um, has taught me is that in the 21st century, Jewish identity is something we choose more than is being implicated or chosen for us. We used to be the chosen people, now we are the choosing people. Why? It's complicated. People are choosing way more than they used to be. A hundred years ago, maybe some of you folks, but I doubt it, you didn't choose who you got married to. Your parents decided for you. It wasn't just Tevye. You didn't choose your profession. You were Cohen and Sons. And women had way less choices than men. Hello, modernity. We got a lot of choices on the menu. You swipe, and you click, and you choose, and you make good or bad choices. The more informed you are, the better. And Jewish identity, not just Jewish, is very often self-chosen. Now, contrast that with what a Israel, as of this morning, even more right-wing religious, 
We'll see where that goes. Wants Judaism to be a specific kind of orthodox. And I happen to know because my cousin is the chief rabbi. We barely talk. But it's a black hat kind of Judaism where my kind of liberal, flexidox, gay Judaism is not as respected. And in fact, not so much accepted. So the people you spoke about from Australia and Poland and Iowa and Phoenix and New York, especially younger ones, are opting in. The self-selecting Judaism. And that's complicated because we may have lost the one version of Judaism that we may have never had. I'm going back to your story about the 12 lanes in the, in the sea. It's a midrash, right? But what is it talking about? Why can't we all just walk into the sea the way C.C. DeMille imagined it? All crowded together on one El Al play. Because we don't. Because we actually never have. Because one size fit all is one size fit none. So we're in a moment now of real, real transition. We're in a paradigm shift. And yet I think if people self-select and choose and say, I want to be here, Hineni, this is my Sinai moment, and it's our responsibility as a Jewish community to be as inclusive, patient, expansive, and flexible as possible, and have faith that love will get people to step into a Jewish reality that wakes us up. And it's not going to be all of us one, one way. Not sure that answered your question, but it, that's, that's why it took me. Which will lead me to the actual question. Um, in 1999, I started a nonprofit in New York City. I just moved from Israel. It was called Storytelling. Basically, I read this chapter in Hamaya, and I was so blown away. I was like, wait, how come the Torah service sucks? Sorry. But I, like, I went to synagogue from synagogue in Manhattan, and like, Tefillah was kind of exciting. There was music or meditation and thing. Torah service. <laughs> Kids are there. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This is like theater. There's a guy on stage. We're chanting. It's ancient. It's the world's bestseller. And I went to the rabbis at BJ where I worked, and I said, instead of, I was a scholar in residence. I was in charge of adult education. I was a pisher. I don't know how they let me. And I said, instead of like Wednesday night and bagels and boober on Sunday and whatever, where I get the same 20 millennial, 20, hardly, whatever, who showed up. Jews in the pews on Shabbat morning, there's 500 people, and for about an hour, you lost them with this boring, long Torah service. Give me prime time. I want to reinvent the Torah services theater. And they said, absolutely not. We have a bar mitzvah factory going on here. How do you think we make a living? You can't. And I said, give me a Shabbat morning where I can try this thing, because I'd like, I think we can do something with translation and theater. And they said, great. You would love this. What's your name in the front row? Jeannie Keller. So with Jeannie's, you hit it. So they said to me, this was in November, Joseph. They said, oh, we have a Torah portion in April. Tazriya mitzvah, leprosy, no bar mitzvah. <laughs> Knock yourself out. So I did. And I translated the Torah line by line, according to the Talmudic version, in first person as somebody dealing not with leprosy, but with AIDS. Because yeah. I was dating a gentleman with AIDS at the time. And I'm like, let's talk about stigma. Mm -hmm. And there, you could not hear a pin drop. And at the end of that Shabbat morning, there was a line outside the shul to talk to me and say, can we do this again? Because suddenly, Torah made sense. And suddenly, we're crying. And suddenly, you are the maven. And I understood what's going on. And I want to know more Torah, because I care about my Judaism. Because until this Shabbat, I was bored to tears 
but not, no tears, out of things. Suddenly there's real tears. So suddenly the rabbis found another Shabbat and then another one, and I created storytelling, a Jewish ritual theater company that took the Torah service as an opportunity for education, interaction, and talking back to the text. Ten years after storytelling as a nonprofit made waves in, in the Jewish world, we realized something amazing. The artists, the mavens who I trained, started coming together more often. We created Shabbat services in Yom Kippur and our own level, our own version of Seder. And friends came and fans came and some of them were Jewish and some of them were Jewish and some were not. And we thought, we're, we're, looks like we're a community actually. We're like a theater company that became a congregation. And from being the artistic director, I figured actually, maybe it's time for me to step into my rabbinic uh, family lineage and become a rabbi and not just an artist. So I went to rabbinical school Storytelling became Labshul. I, I threw the name on the wall, literally like doing a brainstorm, because I was reading John Dewey, and so impressed with uh, Lab's, Lab School in Chicago. And we're like, we're Lab. We're going to figure out what does ritual life look like in 21st century that will speak to all ages and whoever we're living with and make it exciting. And Labshul became, became an experiment in 2008. By 2010, we had 1,000 people for Yom Kippur. By 2011, we started building more of the infrastructure we have now. And currently, we are a congregation in New York City. Our taglines are we're a pop-up. We don't have a building by design. We are popping to nursing homes and wineries, to galleries, and to big venues when it's big holidays, so that people really feel what it's like to meet them where they are. They're not coming to us. We might need a building. We'll get there. We'll see. We are artist-driven. Everything is created by artists, from the music to the visuals to the theater of storytelling to our graphic design. Graphic designers hate me because I'm very punctilious, but everything looks really good. Um, so it's artist-driven. We are God-optional. That usually takes a gasp. Um, meaning, I don't know what, what people believe in these days, but people believe in something or not. Agnostics and atheists and I don't know, but like we have translated the liturgy in a way that's poetry. Whoever you are, you've got a soul, you've got a spirit, you're here, tap in. So we're God optional, it's fascinating, happy to tell you more about that. And we're everybody friendly. So Jewish, not, Sephardi, Ashkenazi, Jew of color, queer, come on in. Everybody gets an aliyah, everybody is welcome all the time. Uh, we're now trying to figure out a membership structure where we can actually be sustainable and everybody friendly. Tricky, but we're on it. Um, so that's Lab Show. We do a lot of fun things. We meet uh, once a month for Sabbath Queen. That's our version of a Shabbat, uh, Kabbalah Shabbat. Always begins with a happy hour, because why not? Um, we do Zen Shabbat once a month with the Zen Center, where there's meditation and Shabbat prayers. We decided that Shabbat morning in New York City, people like to sleep in. So we moved Shabbat to Shabbat afternoon. Soul spa, <laughs> mincha in Hebrew. But uh, Solspa is great. Lots of people show up. And storytelling, the Torah, is front and center. Uh, and many other fun things we do. Uh, we got a website. I think you have it on your sheets. And uh, we're growing. And we're trying to figure out how to be both New York local, that's the Watergate, and digital. Because a lot of people are connecting with us virtually. And that is where that's going. So who knows? So that's Lab Show. And storytelling is at the heart of it. How do we translate Judaism to today? Not just Torah but everything we inherited. I think it's a good place to stop.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.